Okay, the reading is long, and it, I'm going to jump from Exodus 25 uh, back a bit. So you can follow me if you want, but I'll jump from 24 to 32. So let me start at verse 9 in chapter 24, Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Chapter 32, starting at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written, the tablets were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other side they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would come to us. Uh, you came to Moses that day. We pray, Lord, please enter into our midst. Have your Holy Spirit to awaken our spirits, just as we just sang. We give you thanks for your word and for your presence and for all of your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. My voice is going on me again, so hopefully I won't need too much hot water. We're starting a three-part series on Joshua, and the three parts will be on Joshua, the faithful follower, Joshua, the courageous leader, and Joshua, the influential guide. So first, we're covering quite a span of the first five books. So we're going to go from essentially Exodus 17 to the end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 34. So we go from the war with Amalek to the death of Moses. 
And then next time, it'll go from the death of Moses to the building of the witness altar by the uh, Reuben Gad and the eastern tribe of Manasseh. And then the following time, we'll go up uh, from there to the death of Joshua. And it's really uh, difficult, obviously, to consolidate all of that scripture down to just uh, a few minutes each day. So I haven't. It's, we're going to be here until like 6, 7 p.m. tonight. <laughs> now, uh, we will, we will uh, compress this quite a bit. Uh, these three roles, Joshua as a faithful follower, as a courageous leader, and as an influential guide, mark his life. Uh, you can see the same thing occurred with Moses, uh, with Moses living in uh, Egyptian splendor for 40 years, and then in the wilderness for 40 years, and then here he is escorting them through the wilderness uh, the, with not alone anymore with all these people. You really have something similar with Joshua. You have three very distinct periods of his life. It's amazing that out of millions of people, only two of them were present in Egypt as slaves and were marching across the Jordan to take Canaan. I mean, it's just amazing to think about that. It's not that long later. But now, of course, that's, I'm sorry, that's anybody over 20. But, you know, everybody uh, under 20 has potentially lived. So you might have young adults that remember this. Maybe the 15 to 20-year-olds would remember all of this. But yet now they're much older. They've been in the wilderness all this time. So now we've got these roles of Joshua, but they're really not in relation to God. He is the follower of Moses. He is the leader of the people, the army especially. And then he is a guide to posterity, to the future of the people after he'd moved them into the promised land. And he really did transition somewhat gradually between those. He was preparing for each of those roles, and we'll see that. So it's not clear-cut like this happened, this happened. But many times, in a formal way, that is how it appears. A person goes from being a follower to suddenly they're a leader, this fine day right here. But that's not necessarily how it occurs in reality. In reality, people grow into those roles. So let's examine him as a faithful follower. Before we get back to the stories, though, even with having to cover so much, I must digress. Uh, this is about leadership. And yet, today we're beginning with this faithful follower. But when you look on Amazon for books on leadership, you go Amazon, click books, type leadership, you will find over 190,000 titles that reference leadership on Amazon. There are 173 books on something called followership. Who knew that was a word? I didn't know that was a word, but followership is a word. Now, maybe with the modern social media, with people following trends and following people, maybe that's become a word recently. But yet, this is a word that is the contrast to leadership. Now, ship, obviously, is the, what's added to the end of these words. And so let me give you the definition of ship. Suffix, and this is not what the Navy would give you as a definition for ship. <laughs> Suffix appended to a noun to form a new noun, denoting property or state of being, time spent in a role, or a specialized union. So, see, you could stick ship on the end of anything, I think, you know, if, as long as you want to propose these types of things. So I think that's what happened at some point. Leadership's probably always been a word, and yet followership has become a word as people have begun seeing the need for it. Now, I mentioned to you, Amazon, 190,000-plus books 
of leadership, followership, 173. But even of the 173 on followership, many of them are written to leaders about how to make your followers better followers. <laughs> so see, you can't even trust those numbers, I don't think. When you go out to Google and you do type in leadership, hit, hit enter, it comes back in 0.55 seconds and tells you that there are over 800 million hits of the word leadership. That's immense. You type followership in the same amount of time, it comes back and says there are 740,000 hits. Now, I don't know if you can do the math that quickly, but both of these, the Amazon reference and the Google reference, both of them reflect a ratio of about 1,100 to 1. Over 1,000 to 1, leadership to followership. And if you think about it, think of the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are 17 references that include this phrase, captains of thousands. So it ought not surprise us too much that there is this kind of emphasis on leadership over followership, because, but if you think about it, it's reversed. In other words, take a modern captain, a modern captains of thousands in our military or wherever. They have a thousand books to choose from for every one book that they can distribute among their thousand men. I mean, it's remarkable, really. It's totally inverted. You would think there would be a lot more books on followers, since there are a lot more followers. But there are practically none. This is interesting to me. I, hopefully it's interesting to you. But I find it fascinating. And I didn't know any of this until I started looking into this. It was just fascinating. So now, calling someone an excellent follower in our culture is not typically a compliment, right? I mean, I've been in business a long time, and I don't know that I've ever really heard anyone described as an excellent follower without their coming the word, but. So they're now going to share some weakness that prevents this person from becoming a leader. So followers and leaders have tended to become these isolated definitions from one another. Followers are bad, kind of a necessary evil, because there is only one captain of a thousand, and there are all these other 999. The most they can hope for is to be the captain of a 10 or a 100, right? So now, until recently, until I'd say about maybe nine, eight, nine years ago, followership was just invisible. And then suddenly people began studying it, and so now you can go out and find stuff on it. But until then, you really didn't see much. And I think for the most part, good followers have tended to be perceived as a side effect of good leaders. In other words, good leaders know how to motivate people. They know how to encourage people. They know how to get the best out of people. As if the followers themselves are just nothing, like raw material. All there for the leader to manipulate and to massage into making it something more useful than it otherwise would be. So good followers are expected. Now, when I did this study, I'm looking just at the people that are writing about followership. Some people are specializing in this now. So this is just about good followership. And listen to these. There are 11 words. Honesty. These are attributes that good followers should exhibit. Honesty. Loyalty. Brave dissent. In other words, be bold enough to disagree when it's necessary. Competence. Good judgment. Discretion. Humility. Humility. Good team player, 
initiative, responsibility, ran out of hands, fingers, and this is what I'm choosing for 11, trustworthiness. So I I just listed 11 words. Now, to uh, rip a phrase out of the uh, Christmas uh, hymn, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see in listing those 11 words? You could list those for leaders. There's no difference between what people are describing as the best of followers and a good leader. So see, we think of the word leader and follower, and I think we are wrong in thinking of them as leader and follower for the most part. Because really, all the best followers could potentially in their own right be leaders. And essentially, that's where they're headed with the trajectory that they're on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, good followers are just good leaders viewed from another perspective. Now, it is true, and when I've been in company with talking about folks who has the potential for this, that, and the other, it is true that we often say, well, this person is excellent in these things, great followers in this regard, great individual contributors is the popular term now in business. Follower is a bad word. Individual contributor is the word, the proper word. It's just like, you know, sanitation engineer, that type of thing, this inflation of, of words in order to try to prevent people from being uh, offended. But now, I do know many people that I work with that probably wouldn't make great leaders because they don't have one or two of these critical elements. But they're really great in many regards. And so it doesn't mean that they're not great in aspects of leadership. It's just there are a few key things, like maybe their treatment of people, that would be a little wanting. They would perhaps cause uh, UP to face lawsuits periodically based on what they say to people or about people. But there are just these weaknesses that people have. And so, frankly, a leader to, to rise to that level uh, must have no glaring weakness that, that causes them to be discounted. But it doesn't mean there aren't great followers out there that have excellent leadership uh, qualities. For instance, for every Captain Kirk, there's a Commander Spock, right? For every Batman, there's a Robin. For every Lone Ranger, there's a Tonto. And now, for Moses, there was a Joshua. So this great follower takes nothing away by being called a follower. They could, in their own right, be leaders often the times. There is an Air Force study that I read online. Very good. I liked it a lot. And this is a quote. The title was Dynamic Followership. A dynamic followership program should produce individuals who, when the moment arrives, seamlessly transition to lead effectively. So that's a great, great follower. Someone's really ready to step in. I I was in the Marine Corps, you know, and, and I know David was too. One of the things that the Marine Corps prided itself on was training, disciplining the NCOs such that, you know, the sergeant gets killed, the corporal takes over. The corporal gets killed, the lance corporal takes over. You just train leadership all throughout the ranks. But whereas foreign militaries often don't do that. They just have a bunch of people that truly are followers. I don't want to do anything that's going to get me in trouble, that's going to make me stick out. And so when their seniors get killed, they kind of go into chaos. There is another thing I want to share here. And it could be, I wanted to clarify this. Followers do not serve leaders. Now, in our text, we actually refer to Joshua as Moses' assistant. And we call him 
a follower. But followers do not serve leaders. Rather, leaders and followers both serve the common purpose or mission within a shared set of values. And I believe that's true biblically for Joshua as well. We all have to be prepared to challenge our leaders if they deviate from the standard that we share. And so when we find a leader, when we, like if we, if we were, we love Phil, but if we began to feel that he was getting uh, too, too uh, far off the track in terms of uh, uh, adherence to the word, we would call them on it. We really must. And that's the difference between a church that has this shared standard that really does honor the Bible with one that it's a cult of celebrity where the leader can say nothing wrong because the people will never call them on it. That's where that bold dissent has to come in. The followers have to be bold to dissent when they detect error in what's being shared. Now, we're going to now go into the text, and we'll move kind of quickly, so if you do want to follow it in your text, uh, please do. We'll start at Exodus 17. We're going to highlight, and now this also comes to the handout that was really intended for the children today, or the young people. Uh, you have a word search. It's a complex one. There are 24 words buried in there, and they're all of these characteristics that I find in Joshua as a great follower of Moses. And it's concerning 10 vignettes in Joshua's life that we pulled those 24 out. So first, Exodus 17. Now, this is the first occurrence of Joshua in the Bible, and it's a, to me it's a very interesting one. I'll start reading at verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. That's the first occurrence of Joshua in our Bible. And yet he's being called upon by Moses to raise up an army and go fight an invader. So there are a few things that you can deduce from this. First... Moses needed a man. Suddenly, Amalek appears on the horizon. I need someone to form an army. Who does he call upon? Joshua. That tells you that Joshua was available for such a duty. I've told some of you, I think I remember telling uh, Brandon this, I think, but uh, I know I've shared it with some of my coworkers at work, my young guys. I remember reading a business book, and it was in the auto industry, and we're talking like, oh boy, 90 years ago? Uh, way before computers became common. And so then you had a man, typically very few women were in the industry then in like the 1920s. And so this man is the foreman or the, or the supervisor, and he's in this office, and he's got this huge room like this with desks lined up with like 60 guys sitting at them working. And so they work there from 8 to noon and from 1 to 5, 8-hour shift. They're going to be there at work. This one man would stick around, though. And so all these 60 guys, 5 o'clock, toot, woo, you know, the stampede occurs. And yet the supervisor would periodically say, is anybody still out there? And this one guy is always there. I'm here, sir. And he'd come to... That guy rose to run that auto company. Why? Because he was available. He wasn't behaving like all of these lemmings. He was making himself available for these people to serve them, to be a servant. So see, he was available. Joshua made himself available. And also, in order for Moses to even done this, he had to have been dependable. 
His reputation preceded him. Moses knew before he called upon him his character. So he was dependable. Now let me go on. Let me read another verse. Verse 10, Exodus 17, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. See, that's important in a military commander, to do what you're told. He's a follower in that regard. I've read a lot of military history. Not all military commanders do as they're told. They think they know better than the person who's giving them commands. They think they have a lot of discretion to perceive different guidance in this command that they've been given. Joshua didn't. Joshua did what Moses had told him to do. He fought with Amalek. So he was obedient. He did as he was told. We'll go on a couple of verses to Exodus 17, 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So here he was steadfast. Now you remember the story. There is the war going on. Joshua and his people, his army is fighting. And yet Aaron and, and uh, her and Moses all climb this mountain now, how quickly was it that Moses realized that as long as the staff was up, they'd win. As long as it was down, they'd lose. I don't think it, the staff came with a little instruction saying that that would happen. So he had to figure that out. So through observation, he's learned this. And so now he's trying to hold it up there. Aaron and her come and help him. But until that time, Joshua had to persist. He was suffering defeat at times during this war. And yet he persisted. So he was steadfast in his opposition to Amalek in carrying this out. The next verse, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Note that. That I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So God has Moses write their victory over the Amalekites in this book and make special note to read it before Joshua that he would destroy these people from the earth. Why? Why do you think God would make special mention of this? Obviously, he was proud of what Joshua had done that day. Joshua probably wanted to continue to pursue those Amaleks. They obviously fled the battlefield. They're not exterminated yet. And yet God assures through Moses, he assures Joshua, don't worry about this, Joshua. I will eventually take care of this. And he does. Way, 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 way down the road. So now, the next vignette is from their ascent of Mount Sinai, and this is in Exodus 24. It's what I read. And so what I read to you was them having the meal with God. Seventy elders having this meal with God. Aaron and Moses, they have this meal. They go back down. Uh, to the base of the mountain, and now they're going back up. And Moses tells everyone to remain behind, but he tells Joshua, come with me. So see, Joshua was critical. He was Moses' assistant. He was critical to them. So he was useful to Moses. God told Moses to come up, and yet Moses, with some liberty, license here, he says, Joshua, you come too. And so they start up the mountain. But now you know that they get up the mountain and they don't enter into that cloud yet. How long are they there? Seven days. God calls to Moses from the cloud and has him enter that cloud after he'd already been on the mountain seven days. He and Joshua had been together for seven days. But then we know what, what, why Moses called on him. 
because Joshua was going to remain there for weeks. And in obedience, he stays there. That is the one thing I most admire in dogs versus cats, is the dogs that will actually stay, the ones that have been trained by their master to stay, even if someone is holding a piece of meat in front of them, that dog will just sit there like a soldier. Cats don't do that. They do what they want when it comes to that type of thing. And most dogs do, too. You all have dogs that are bad like that. So very few dogs are that disciplined. Joshua was so disciplined, and and I don't mean to demean him, of course, by comparing him to a dog, but he was so disciplined in this. He doesn't know what happened to Moses, just like Aaron and everybody down there doesn't know what happened to Moses. He's going to wait there forever because he has faith that Moses will emerge from that cloud eventually. And you know that God tells Moses what happened. Your people have rebelled down there. They're worshiping a golden calf. Moses comes down, rejoins Joshua, and they start walking. Then Joshua comments on hearing the noise. There's noise of war in the camp. See, Moses hasn't told Joshua what happened, what God told him. But Moses uh, doesn't tell him. Joshua perceives that there's war going on. And to me, that tells me something else about Joshua. That tells me that he's an optimist. He's not thinking badly of these people. He's thinking, I want to go there. These are my people. I want to defend them. There's war down there. But Moses knows He tells him it's the voice of singing. It's singing I hear, not war. So see, this to me is Joshua's optimism. He's optimistic about these people. He's faith. He's looking forward. So now we have Exodus 33. So we skip ahead a few few chapters here. 33, starting at verse 7. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So all the time that Moses had his tent pitched way outside the camp and and satisfying this purpose, Joshua didn't leave it. He just remained there. Again, Moses could trust him to do this. He was reliable. And also, I think there's something else that you could deduce from this. Joshua was having to make a sacrifice in order to do this. Moses got to go back to the camp. He got to be with the people. I imagine Joshua had family. He may have even been married and had children. And yet, he is in that tabernacle, and no one else is entering it but Moses. And this could have gone on for weeks, months. It's really not obvious. So he was reliable, and he was sacrificial in these these ways. So now we skip way ahead. We skip way ahead to chapter 11 of Numbers. And in Numbers 11, starting at verse 24, well, actually, I'll start reading at... Yeah, 24. 
Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Now, what's happening is is uh, Moses has complained to God that people were complaining for meat, and Moses complains to the Lord, saying, what do you want me to do with these people? I, I did not ask to be their provider like this. And he's whining. He, he's pretty whiny here. So God te- assures him that he will provide. Moses went out and told the people to, to bring these 70 elders. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. So what does this tell you about Joshua? First, note the respect in the way he addressed Moses. What did he say? Moses, my Lord. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a term of respect that he's showing to Moses. Moses, my Lord. He's also eager to protect Moses' reputation. He is eager to protect that. He jumps at this opportunity. Moses, my Lord, forbid them. He just assumes there's something wrong here. These people ought not be doing this. Moses is the prophet. Moses is the boss. What are you people doing? And then also he's bold. He's doing that bold uh, approach to the leader. He's not afraid to approach Moses about this, telling him what to do. Moses, forbid them. He thinks he knows what's right here, and he doesn't hesitate to yell it out. So again, respectful, loyal, bold. Now we go on, and we know what Moses said. I wish that all the people would prophesy. You know, Moses is very magnanimous. He's very humble. And so all of these, remember, all of these are ways in which Joshua learned. Moses was modeling leadership for Joshua. If Joshua had been in the position of leader in some of these instances, he would have not made the right choice. Moses modeled the right choice for him. And we know the one bad choice that Moses modeled as well. So now let's go to Numbers 13, just another chapter on. So I'll start reading at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names. Let me skip down. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, then down to 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses had renamed uh, Joshua. His name had been Hoshea. It became Joshua. And so here we see another evidence where Joshua is referred to as a leader. Right in the text, every one a leader among them. So we're talking about Joshua as a follower, a faithful follower, but yet the text obviously already recognizes him as a leader within his tribe, within his family and clan. A couple of things that that I deduced, I think you could add a lot here actually, but really, what are the qualifications for a spy? I mean, would you like to be a spy? 
Do you think you have the character to be a spy? I think to be a spy is pretty unique. You have to have certain attributes. You, for one thing, you better watch what you say. You have to be quick-witted, quick with being able to figure out what these people want when they come and accost you. You have to be able to talk your way out of things, talk your way into things. You have to be comfortable lying. I know not every, every Christian is comfortable with that, but when you study the Bible enough, you realize that some of these people are commended, commended even, by God for lying. And so we live in a world filled with sin, and God understands that there are times whenever such a thing is necessary. So a spy must be discreet. They must know who they're talking to, who they're not talking to, what they're sharing, what they're not sharing. And they have to be wise, very wise. So there could, I think there could be many more, many more that we could say about this spy. So I think I've given you all except eight. So if anybody's trying to do that word search, you should have all but eight marked. Okay, let's go to, again in Numbers 13, it's just a little bit further along. Now we're at verse 25. And they returned from spying out the land. I'm going to read this whole thing. This is very interesting. And we'll have to come back and pick up a few highlights. They returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, these are the people reporting. First, they're given the good news. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. So see, it's obvious that the people are getting upset about this report. There's way too much opposition here. And they're beginning to get, allow things to cascade out of control. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. So now, I believe what's happening here is some of these spies are changing their tune. They're beginning to read the consensus of the congregation, and their fear is affecting them. They just traipsed through all the land. They came back with all that fruit. I believe they were more positive until they came back, and all of this fear started spreading. And fear is like that. It's just like a contagion sweeping through the people. So now these spies are, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be going up there. We don't have these people's support to do that. They gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us out to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. 
Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. In other words, they're refuting the lies that the other spies are now saying, that it's a bad land. When they first got back, they said it's a good land. They always said it's a good land. Now they're saying it's bad. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. God saved their lives. God saved the lives of Joshua and Caleb, I'm convinced, by the glory cloud coming down and and being at the tabernacle door. Because they have been trained now to fear the Lord, just as Phil brought up in the introduction. When you read up to this point, you know that these people live in fear of God. When they were at the foot of Mount Sinai and they start worshiping that golden calf, I think they're thinking to themselves, yay, we're free of that scary God and that power monger Moses. But here they are. God comes down again to save Joshua and Caleb. So now, what does this tell us about Joshua? First, they tore their clothes. This is all cascading out of control. And the first thing, Moses and Aaron bow down. They prostrate themselves. And Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. They're so frustrated by how this is going sideways on them. And they're trying to spark courage, backbone in these people. And in the midst of all these people that are opposing them, they raised their voices, Joshua and Caleb both. They weren't afraid to speak up, so they were assertive. They were humble in tearing their clothes. They were assertive in speaking their their truth, and they spoke truthful words. This is an exceedingly good land. And these guys, if they weren't such cowards, would tell you that because that's what they were saying earlier before you got upset when you heard about all these giants living in the land. So, They told the truth in a very, very difficult circumstance. And some of you, I'm I'm sure, will remember this quote. It's one of my favorites that pop into my head when things like this come up. Uh, Samuel Goldwyn, he was the the head of a a television studio that became MGM. He was the G, Goldwyn, in MGM Studios. He once said this, I want everyone to tell me the truth, even if it costs them their jobs. So see, these get men, Joshua and Caleb, are telling the truth, and it may cost them their lives. It's more than their jobs. It's costing them their lives. And so they're being truthful, and they're being courageous. They're being courageous because they still want to go and oppose these people. They've been through the land. They've seen these giants, but they also know their God. They know God. I love how they describe these people as bread. They are our bread. God is sending us in to harvest what they've produced because they are no longer worthy of retaining it. So now we skip ahead. We're kind of moving now past Joshua as the follower. We already have seen indications of his leadership, but now we're moving more into where he's formally being brought into leadership. And we'll end before, obviously, we get to him invading the Promised Land. So in Numbers 27... 
Numbers 27, verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. God has just told Moses, No, you're not ending, entering the promised land. Stop asking me. And so then Moses says, Please set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And so we add two more words to this. Joshua was saved. He had the Holy Spirit in him. It says, in whom is the Spirit? No one ought ever in a Christian circumstance want anybody that they suspect is an unbeliever as their leader. It just doesn't make any good sense. You want, you want the best Christian you can find to be put into leadership. You don't want to be seeking any non-Christians to lead you. And second... Joshua is then authoritative. You shall give him some of your authority. And so Moses began then to inject Joshua into formal leadership, having him act in an authoritative manner. And why is that? That all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And so that formal recognition of authority is important, and it lets people know, hey, this is the way it's going to be. So now we skip ahead to uh, Numbers 32 starting at verse 28. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest. Now here is where he's talking about uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He wants them... Remember, Moses isn't going into the land, and yet he's just made an agreement with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that they would go with the Israelites to fight across the Jordan. And this is what then Moses says. Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. So all that land that we are leaving now will be theirs. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. Now, what he's doing is this. Moses is... Now, who here has ever been an executor or an executrix? Anybody raise your hand if you've ever had to do that. Nobody. Nobody's ever had to do that. Wow. I've had to do that twice. Okay, I guess I'm unique. Okay. So... What you are as an executor as, or as an executrix is you are acting in the stead of that person for whom you're doing that duty. They've passed on. You are fulfilling their will on earth. So you, it's not your will that you then do. It's their will. And it actually is a will, isn't it? So now, that's what's happening here. Moses is saying, okay, I'm making this deal with these tribes, and yet I'm not going to be around to enforce it. And so he's imparting to Eleazar and to Joshua and to the chiefs of the tribes, I'm holding you all accountable to enforce this. And so Joshua then is again being honorable in taking on this responsibility that he's going to have to fulfill years from now. And it might not be easy. 
And there is the scare that occurs later, and we'll get to that next week. So now, that word was honorable. And so now the last one in Numbers 34, starting at verse 16, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. Now all parents are familiar with the paradox of fairness when dividing things amongst your children. And we don't always succeed entirely. And then we all kind of learn the tricks. It's like, okay, well, if there's this much pie left and two kids want it, one person cuts the pie, then the other person gets to choose the piece they want, right? Very fair, very equitable. Until they cut it unevenly. And, you know, see, if you don't have that rule, then the kid that's cutting says, oh, I'm going to cut this sliver off, eat it, such that then the two pieces are the same size, right? Isn't that the cheater's way of, of dividing up the pie equitably? So, see, that's what Moses is trying to avoid. And he imparts this again, the second yet thing, to Eleazar, to Joshua, and to one person from each of the tribes. You people are going to be the ones that ensure that this is fair for everybody. So again, fair is the word. Now, Joshua spent 40 years as a faithful follower of Moses. And so the best followers are those that learn leadership from a good leader. And during that time, they are leading. They're given ample opportunities. They're being protected from failure in many ways by having the leader protect them, but yet they are learning to be a leader. And so that's why next time we'll look at Joshua as a leader. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the life of Joshua, for his uh, incredible life, uh, he and Caleb, and Joshua especially, uh, being in the tabernacle, being with Moses on the mountain, being outside of that cloud, and yet being relied upon to stay there for weeks, not having heard anything from the camp, not having heard anything from Moses, what's going on with the lightning in the cloud. Lord, this was a courageous man, a very, very responsible and reliable man, and we thank you for him. We pray that we can be uh, along the same lines as Joshua's. It's no wonder that Joshua is such a popular name with Christians. Uh, he was such a man after your own heart, a man that was uh, willing to sacrifice and serve you uh, with his life. And we pray, Lord, please continue to awaken us to uh, what he had done, uh, give us wisdom, have us to model ourselves, to recognize opportunities as he did, to step into opportunities as he did. We give you thanks now for your word and for your presence in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.